Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Great to see you this morning and worship together. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, why don't I just say a brief word of prayer before we keep reading Philippians. Will you pray with me? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear God, we are so grateful to be here this morning. We're so grateful to know you. Your grace has changed our lives, Lord. We have experienced the joy of forgiveness and love that comes from you. And we are just so blessed to know you, to know our God who loves us and accepts us. And it is our pleasure to worship you this morning, God. We ask that you would be honored as we read your word and that you would help us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's nothing worse than a counterfeit. When I was in high school, I was even less mature than I am now. And it was a very hot September day. There was no air conditioning in the classroom we were in, and Ms. Sumariva would not allow us to turn on the ceiling fans. She thought that when we turned on the ceiling fans, it's, it would short-circuit the electricity in the room. What was really happening is some mischievous students were shoving metal into the lights, into the power socket when we had pop quizzes, which was turning off the electricity, but she was convinced it was the ceiling fans. So there we sat in this extremely hot classroom with the door closed. We just got back from lunch where we're running around and playing basketball in the sun, and we're just like dripping sweat. And so teenage Luke thought it would be a good idea to take my water bottle, crack the lid off of it, and just dump the whole thing over one of my friend's heads who was sitting in front of me. Miss Sumariva turned around and she kicked him out of class. She was like, what are you doing? Get out of here. So he gets up and walks out of class, just completely dripping wet. He comes back a few minutes later wearing his PE uniform. He had changed into some dry clothes. He sat down, didn't say a word, just took out a piece of paper and he began to pen a declaration of war against Luke Pamplin, a water war. So after class, he got a few friends together and with various containers of various sizes, they chased me down across the campus and dumped water all over me. Well, of course I had to retaliate. And so I recruited a few of my own soldiers and we chased them down and dumped water on them. He recruited some additional people, and I recruited some additional people. And before long, our armies were quite large, and the water wars raged between classes during our lunch break and recesses that we had uh, during the day. Occasionally, <clears throat> when I was in a planning meeting with my top military officials, I would be kneeled down in a huddle, explaining our next attack. I'd be like, we're going to hit him at the lunch tables, and we're going to chase him up this way, and we're going to have a trap for him. But if they go this way, we'll flank him. You know, I'm laying it all out, and right while I'm in the middle of a, of a sentence, someone would dump a big gulp of water over my head. A traitor. From right in our midst. And so, of course, we would capture him because he's right in the huddle. 
And then we would give him an ultimatum. We would say either you can be at the bottom of a very large dog pile of high school boys, which every high school boy knows is a nightmare, or you can double cross Anthony. You can go back over there and when he has his planning meeting and gets down on his knee to lay out the plan, you can dump a big gulp of water on his head. And usually they would take the deal and we would get Anthony back. But there's nothing worse than a counterfeit, right? Maybe someone who, who you appears to be on your team, has your best interest in mind, and then it turns out they're a fake. Perhaps you've uh, gotten an email from your bank where they just wanted to update some of your information, but then you looked at it a little more carefully and you realized the email wasn't from your bank at all. It was a scam and they were trying to take your money. I mention this, of course, because there are also spiritual counterfeits. From the time of the first century, when the Bible was written, to today, there are those who call themselves followers of Jesus and use biblical language, and yet they do not believe the most basic teachings of Jesus. They call themselves Christians, and yet the foundational teachings of Christianity are anathema to them. Just a, a few months ago, I was studying at a coffee shop in Diamond Bar. And I got up to leave, and as I was walking out the door, I think because I had my No Jesus Make Him Known shirt on, a young man approached me. He introduced himself and then immediately invited me to a Bible study. And at first I was impressed, but then I asked a few questions, and within two or three questions, it became immediately clear to me that he was inviting me to a cult of Christianity. That is, a group that calls itself Christian and studies the Bible, but does not teach the basic doctrine of Christianity. In fact, they teach an entirely different gospel. And I knew this cult especially well, because when I was a teenager, two of my closest friends had fallen for it, and they have horror stories that they often recount of what happened before they finally found out that they'd been fooled. And so how do we not fall for spiritual counterfeits? How do we resist alluring messages about Jesus that sound in many ways biblical and true, but in fact would lead us farther and farther and farther away from the Jesus of the Bible? Well, one way the Bible tells us to resist spiritual counterfeits is to live to know Jesus more and more and more, to strive to get closer and closer to the biblical Jesus. Do you remember Pastor Tim's homework from last week? He said, wake up each day, and before you do anything else or think anything else, just say, Jesus, I want to know you more. And it turns out that the more you read about the Jesus of the Bible, 
and pray to him and live for him, the harder it would be for someone to pull you away from him and fool you into following someone who is no savior at all. Let's uh, pick up in chapter 3 of Philippians, where we left off. And we'll start reading in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 3. And as we start reading here in verse 12, it'll take a little bit of context, but see if you can hear how one of the ways we avoid falling for spiritual counterfeits is by living to know Jesus more. He says, I better turn to the right book. Starting in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says this. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. So a bit of context before we dissect the text. This is chapter 3, which Paul began by giving a stern warning against counterfeit Christians. In two verses, again, we're going to read explicitly about these counterfeits, some more. And then he will sum up the whole thought in chapter 4, verse 1, by encouraging us to stand firm in the Lord. That is, stand firm in the Lord against counterfeit spirituality. And right here in the middle of this chapter that is all about resisting counterfeit spirituality, he tells us how to do it, but it raises some questions, doesn't it? He says, not that I have already obtained all this, but doesn't tell us what all this is, or have already arrived at my goal. What goal? But I press on to take hold of that. Take hold of what? That Christ Jesus took hold of me. What did he take hold of you for? Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Hold of what? But one thing I do, he says, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. But what is ahead? I press on toward the goal to win the prize. What goal? And what prize? What is Paul talking about here? What is he pressing on toward, striving toward, hasn't arrived at yet? What has God taken hold of him for? What is his goal in life, his prize? Well, the answer is to know Jesus. If you just back up a few verses, in verse 10, he says this. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, 
and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. That is what Paul is pressing on towards, to know Jesus. That is his prize that he will receive one day in heaven when he has complete knowledge of Jesus. But in the meantime, here in this life, he strives and presses on every day to get closer and closer to Jesus, to know him more and more and more. And of course, we should clarify that it's not as if Paul doesn't strive for anything else in life or want anything other than to know Jesus. He's human. He wants to eat lunch later, and we know he would like to get out of prison and visit the Philippians. He wants lots of things, and you and I want lots of things. We want to go on vacation and rest. We want to get a promotion, perhaps, that we've been working hard for and straining toward. Pastor Tim, I think, mentioned last week, if you're single, perhaps you have a desire to get married. It's not that we don't desire lots of things. It's just that there's one thing we desire more than anything else. One thing that without that one thing, every other goal, dream, pursuit in life would be completely meaningless. And that is to know Jesus Christ. Did you do Pastor Tim's homework for this past week? Pastor Tim said, try waking up each day of the week. And before you do anything or say anything else, just say, Jesus, I want to know you more. I did the homework. I had to hear the sermon twice, though, so I can't, I can't judge the rest of you. The second time I heard it in second service, I thought, ah, oh, I should do that. And then somehow on Monday morning when I woke up, I remembered. And I sat on the edge of my bed, and before I did anything or thought anything, I just said, Jesus, I want to know you more. And it was beautiful. It was centering and clarifying, especially because I'm a morning person. And so if you're a morning person, maybe you can relate to this. When I wake up in the morning, I'm just ready to go. I literally run through the place sometimes. And thoughts start going through my head a mile a minute. And as you could probably guess, I instantly start thinking about things I'm excited about in life. I start thinking about my goals and my plans and what I'm working towards, my hobbies, what I'm going to do later that day, the weekend. It all just goes through my head like a mile a minute while I start my day. Which is why it was nice on Monday to start and just before any of that started, just say, Jesus, I want to know you more. And then all those thoughts and things I'm excited about start racing through my head. And then on Monday, I would find myself kind of coming back to it again. I would just pause and I'd say, yes, yes, yes. But Jesus, I want to know you more. And then I even took it a step farther. And I said, Jesus, I want to know you more 
then I want all these things I'm excited about. I partly said it just to see if I could say it, you know? And I did. And it felt good. And so I took it one step further. I said, Jesus, I don't need to ever get any of these things that I'm excited about, that I'm working towards, that I'm looking forward to. In fact, I could die tonight, and that would be okay, because I don't need any of those things that I want. I only need you. You are my hope. You are my reward. You are my treasure. And it felt clarifying. It felt cleansing almost to say it and to mean it and to feel that sense of renewed purpose of wanting to know Jesus in everything that I do. I had a coffee with a friend a few years ago, or maybe lunch, I don't recall. And he was a new believer, and we were sitting down together, enjoying some time together, when the subject of Jesus came up. And he said something that made me sad. He said, I don't know if I have time for Jesus anymore. And then he went on to explain how he was starting a new job, and how he had uh, friends who he was hanging out with. And I can't remember the whole list, but he laid out the whole busy schedule. And then he reiterated, he said, I just don't know if I have time for him, you know? And what I said was, and I'm paraphrasing, Jesus never asks to be part of your busy life. Jesus never asks to be added on to your busy schedule. Jesus only ever asks to be your whole life. He wants you to fit your whole exciting, busy life into the context of your relationship with him. He wants you to want him more than anything else in life. One Bible scholar says the way you can tell how well you are living to know Jesus above any other desire in life is to, the, is to what degree you cut corners in life. You see, Paul didn't have to sit in prison. He wanted to get out. And you know what? He could have gotten out. All you would have to do is deny Christ, apologize for preaching the gospel, promise to never do it again, and he would have likely had many opportunities along the way to escape from prison. And yet, he didn't do that. Not because he didn't want to get rid of those chains he referred to, but because he wanted something even more than to get out of prison. He wanted to know Jesus. And if knowing Jesus meant sitting in a prison cell in chains, then that was okay. Because even in suffering, Paul says, I'll know Jesus better. He says, I will share in the fellowship 
of his suffering. We read that verse. For you and me, maybe it's when that opportunity to get promoted finally does come. The one we've been thinking about and working towards and waiting for, and then it comes. But to get it, we would have to lie, cheat, steal, step on someone in an ungodly way. And so we don't take it. We watch it go to someone else who's willing to be dishonest. And it hurts. But even though it hurts, it's okay. Because in our suffering, we understand our Savior and know him better. The Savior who did not cling to this world so tightly that he wasn't willing to suffer and die in obedience to the Father. And so we don't cut corners because as much as we want to get married, we want something else so much more to know Jesus. And as much as we want every dream and goal in life, they don't come close. In fact, they don't even matter if there isn't a goal bigger than them all to get closer and closer to Jesus Christ until one day we know him fully. And so do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to know Jesus more and more every day? Or do you just want to go on vacation? Do you just want to get that raise, get married, so much that you'll cut any corner you need to cut to avoid any suffering you need to avoid to reach your goal? Or do you want to know Jesus so much more than any of that? So much that you're even willing to suffer if it means knowing him in his suffering and in his pain. That's what Paul is hoping we will move toward. He's not just telling us how he lives this way to tell us that he lives this way. He's sharing how he desires to get closer and closer to Jesus more than anything else so that we will be convicted and inspired by the way he lives his life and so that we will imitate him and follow his example, which is part of how we just grow spiritually in general, isn't it? We see other Christians who are following Jesus, who are wanting to know him in some area of life more than us. And then we say, oh, wow. I could be more like them. I could be godlier too, which kind of hurts our individualistic mindset for some of us. Some of us like me just want to think, I don't need to follow the example of other godly Christians. All I need is the Bible and I can read it and then I'll practice it. And if I put in the effort to live out what I read, then I can attain any spiritual heights that I desire. And yet, what we find in Scripture is actually something different. What we find in Scripture is that God places us in spiritual communities 
so that we can observe the way those around us live their spiritual lives, be challenged, and grow by what we see. Let's read the next verse here in uh, chapter 3, which is verse 17. <clears throat> and as I read here in verse 17, see how, how Paul tells us we can resist spiritual counterfeits by following godly examples around us. He says this, starting in verse 17. He says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have seen us model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So he says, follow my example. Well, what example? Well, he just told us how he lives to know Jesus more and more. And then he says, follow me. But not just me. He says, in so many words, follow anyone who lives as we do, who desires to know Jesus more than they want anything else in life. See it in them and copy them, which is why I'm so glad that we have our life groups and our ministry fair out there with so many ways to get connected with other believers, to serve with them and to study the Bible with them and to, to eat meals with them. Because inevitably what happens is we see people who are godlier than us, who want to know Jesus more passionately than us in one area or another of life. And it gives us the opportunity to grow. But only if we're humble enough to see it as an opportunity to grow. Because oftentimes, if I could confess my own journey, when I see someone most of my Christian life who is godlier than me in some area of life, my thought would be something like, well, good for you. M must be your gift or something. It's not me. I would see someone with a rich, disciplined prayer life, and I'd be like, whoa, I can't, I don't pray like that. Good for you. Or someone who, who Oh, evangelizes. Don't you hate that? They talk to people about Jesus at their workplace, and then they tell you how they led someone to Christ. And I would just think, whoa, you're bold. I'm shy. Or even when I would see someone go through grief with courage, the thought wouldn't be too different. I think, wow, you're brave. But the reality is, that God places us into spiritual community, as he says in this verse and others like it, so we can see those believers who are godlier than us in certain areas and ask them and how they got there and be convicted and imitate them so that we can grow in our knowledge of Christ. I had a, a family member in my own my own family, who was a, who was a, a great evangelist, we, from time to time, she would just say things like this. We'd be driving down the road, and we would see this, like, guy in a wheelchair by himself in some shade. And she'd say, oh, I was out walking, and I saw that guy. God put it on my heart to talk to him. So he let me pray for him, and I heard his story, and I told him about Jesus. And then the next time I was out, I gave him a gospel of John, right? That's like normal stuff for her. And she only said it because we drove by him and she's making conversation, you know. 
And when she would say things like this, my only thought would be, wow, that's really admirable of you. I'm shy. That was my only response to her, really, for years, until one day, there were some people doing construction across the street from our house. And she came home one day, and she went up to me and she said, if you don't go across the street and tell those people about Jesus, then I will. And I was like, oh no, I'm cornered. I didn't want to tell them about Jesus because I was too afraid, but I also didn't want to be a hypocrite. And so my heart rate got faster and faster and faster because I knew I was going to go over there, but I didn't know what I was going to say. Until finally this thought came to my head, and it was me, but, you know, maybe the Lord was helping me. And I thought, Luke, how hard is it to hand someone a book? (sighs) And my blood pressure, like, immediately started dropping because I had a stack of more than a carpenter books that I got to give away that I'd never given away. It's a book about Jesus. And so I thought, "Yeah. yeah, how hard is it to hand someone a book? So I got a couple of the books, walked across the street. I had a normal, friendly conversation with the man who was there. And I said, this is one of my favorite books. I wanted to give you a copy. So I gave him one. I left one for the other guy who wasn't there. And as I was walking away, back across the street, in hindsight... Even at that moment, as I'm walking away, I knew that a revival of evangelism was starting in my heart. Because I was glad I'd given those guys that book. I knew I'd probably never see him again. And I didn't die. (laughs) And I knew that I wanted to do it again. Little by little, I began noticing opportunities to have spiritual conversations, to invite people to church, to offer to pray for people, to give them that book. And God began to send people. That's what it seems like. He just began to send me more and more people every single week following that. This is going somewhere. But this past week, just this past week, which is no different than any other week, I believe God gave me a flat tire on my way to the gym so I could invite the kindest, sweetest AAA man in the world to church. <laughs> then, because I had a spare tire on, I went to a different gym. And I, and I believe God put it on my heart to invite a college student there to our college group, a young man who he had been putting on my heart for months. Later in the week, I had some food delivered And I gave someone a copy of More Than a Carpenter. And as soon as I started doing this, literally from the minute I started doing it, my life began to feel more meaningful. I just felt like God was giving me work to do. And it was important. And I thought you had to have kids to feel that way. Or or be a brain doctor or something. (laughs) It just felt so, like, meaningful. And the funny thing is... That now, what I struggle with is looking back on the decades of my life where I mostly didn't talk to anybody about Jesus. 
And when I think about the thousands and thousands of people who I did not share Jesus with, I feel grief. And then I practice what Paul says in those verses we just read. He says, forgetting what is behind. And he did some terrible things. He said, I strain toward what is ahead. And so I don't let myself go there. I say, I can't go back. But I still have more of the race to run. Jesus, help me to run the race ahead of me well. And I think I grew in that area, not because I read about it in the Bible, because to my shame, I'd read about it a lot of times. Evangelism, sharing Jesus. But you know how I started getting better? God put someone in my life who wanted to know Jesus more than I did in that area. Someone godlier than me. He let me watch them for years. And then because I'm stubborn, he had them call me out to my face. Don't wait till it gets to that point, okay? You can grow faster than me. And then I imitated what I saw in them. And so, if we want to resist spiritual counterfeits, may we not simply see godly, Jesus-loving people in our lives and say, good for you, not me. But may we ask that person, how did you, Chuck, develop such a rich prayer life? What were the steps you took? Because my prayer life is lacking. How did you, Luke, learn to evangelize when you're so shy and awkward and scared? And when grief hits you unexpectedly and all you want to do is stay home and cry, remember that person who you saw walk through grief who held tightly to Jesus and with courage pursued community and growth in the race ahead and call them and say, how did you do it? Because I need help. And one of those people that are important to imitate are the somewhat annoying ones who talk about heaven too much. Do you know anybody like that? Some Christian who every time you hang out with them, at some point, you know the conversation is going to turn to heaven. For me, that's my brother. The last time we hung out was on no different. Sitting around a bonfire in my backyard, eating vegetables and bean dip. And sure enough, we talked about all the things you talk about. You catch up, this and that, the economy, you know, politics. And then he says, I wonder in heaven, and I, I don't remember what the question was, but he's always got a question, you know. I wonder in heaven when we have our new bodies. Like, duh, 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 you know? And the next thing you know, we're talking about heaven. And something he says inspires me. So I run inside and I get a John Piper sermon about heaven. And I come out and, I, and I'm reading the John Piper sermon to him. And we're, we're just talking about heaven. They can be kind of annoying because heaven seems so far away. And the opportunities and the challenges of this life. They seem so close and so pressing. In fact, it can seem like if you take your eyes off of 
the pressing matters of this life, even for a second, that it all fall apart. So don't bother me with that heaven talk. But the reality is, we cannot handle the opportunities, problems, pains of this fleeting life the way God wants us to unless we approach them with a heavenly perspective. Let's read the last verses here in our sections, picking up where we left off in verse 18. And as we read here, see how, remembering that our citizenship is in heaven is one of the ways that we don't fall for spiritual counterfeits. He says this, starting in verse 18. For, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. He describes the counterfeit Christians again, this time zeroing in on how they focus on this life. He says their minds, I don't want to misquote him, their mind is set on earthly things. All they think about is the pleasures, opportunities, challenges of this life. And this particular cult goes so far as to use Jesus as their excuse to do it. He says they glory in their shame. Meaning the very sins they should be repenting of, they brag about. And they say, but it's all forgiven because of Jesus. This brings Paul to tears because they're so wrong. It's so not the gospel. And their message is so tempting to pull people away from Jesus who want to live a life of pleasure and, and just, just focus on the here and now and live it up. And so Paul cries and he says, but our citizenship, genuine followers of Jesus, our citizenship is in heaven. And he says, we eagerly await a savior from there. We're longing for Christ's return when he will make all things new and usher in the eternal state, paradise. And so we don't settle for the cheap pleasures and preoccupations of this life. No, no, no. We loosen our grip on the things of this world and let go completely if it's sin. And we look forward to heaven. And you know what? When you do that, when you loosen your grip on getting this world just the way you want it, because you know it never will be, 
trying to squeeze every drop of pleasure out of it, and you say, this world is not my home. Jesus, teach me to be content and to trust you and to simply live out my calling while I'm here. <sighs> you start to experience a little bit of the joy of heaven, even now. The peace, the contentment of our eternal home where everything will be right. There's this movie called 1917. It's about World War I. And if you haven't seen it yet, it's old, so it's not my fault for ruining it. But there's this British soldier who's trying to, not that old, but you know what I mean. There's this British soldier who's trying to get, to get to connect with another group of British soldiers to warn them that they're about to go into an ambush. And he finally finds them. He almost dies like 12 times, covered in water, but he finds them. And he's just too tired to warn them. He just collapses when he finds them like against a tree. And this, this whole group of soldiers, they're about to go into battle. And most of them are probably going to die. And so to prepare them for battle, so that they won't love the world so much that they can't fight well, this young man stands up in their midst, and he sings a song to set their hearts on heaven. And this is the song that he sings. He belts out a cappella. He says, I am a poor, wayfaring stranger. I'm traveling through this world with woe. Yet there's no sickness, toil, nor danger in that bright land to which I go. I'm going there to see my father. I'm going there no more to roam. I'm only going over Jordan. I'm only going over home. I know dark clouds will gather around me. I know my way is rough and steep. But golden fields lie just before me where God's redeemed shall ever sleep. I'm going home to see my mother and all my loved ones who've gone on. I'm only going over Jordan. I'm only going over home. I am a poor, wayfaring stranger. I'm traveling through this world of woe, yet there is no sickness, toil, nor danger in that bright land to which I go. I'm going there to see my father. I'm going there no more to Rome. I'm only going over Jordan. I'm only going over home. And as you're watching it, you almost feel inspired to fight bravely. As I'm watching the movie, I'm like, wow. Let's go to battle. And you know what? We're not soldiers about to march into possible death. But the Bible does call us spiritual, well, it calls us soldiers, spiritually speaking. We do have a kingdom of heaven to advance in our hearts and in our world. And if we are going to know Jesus and make him known with courage and effectiveness, then we have to have our hearts set on eternity and eagerly belonging for our Savior. Not caught up in this world so much that it's all we can see and think about. And we don't want to hear any annoying talk of our resting home of peace. When my, uh, 
when my Nana went to be with the Lord, we called her Nana. It sounds embarrassing to say out loud, but that's what I called her. On her last day, my mother had talked to her in the morning, and she was sharp, and they had a conversation. She was on hospice at our house, and my mom said, I'll be home tonight, and then I'll be home for the summer. It's my last day of work. But while my mom was gone at work that day, her mother took a turn for the worst. She could no longer speak. And by the time my mother came into the room, uh, my mother's siblings were all around her. And my mom said that uh, she was waiting for me to come home. That's what my mom said. My mom and her had a special relationship. And so when my mom came into the room and saw her with her gaze fixed, she knelt down next to her. And she said, oh, she's been crying because she had what tears coming out of her eyes. And, and my mom kissed her face in a big circle all the way around her face, just like my Nana used to kiss my mom, a hundred little kisses. And then she said to her, she said, Dad is up there waiting for you. And he's so excited that you're coming to see him. And it's wonderful there. She said, when I said that, she immediately changed her breathing took one more breath, <clears throat> and then went home to be with Jesus. And we will all take our last breath. We can put it out of our minds. We can try not to think about it and just focus on the here and now. But if we do that, we will not be able to live the here and now with the godliness, contentment, and joy that God intends us to approach each day with. I'm tempted to tell you the end of the water wars. Let's just say it was epic. Come talk to me afterwards <laughs> and avoid spiritual counterfeits. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear God, thank you for your word. It's so different than us in some ways when we read about these things of the past. And yet, in other ways, Lord, it still applies to us so well. And we're grateful that you, in your sovereignty, would choose these men, imperfect men, who knew a perfect Savior, to pen your words for us. And God, we just ask that as we conclude our service today, that you would help us to know you more, that you would give us the desire to draw near to you in our hearts through confession of sins, through praise and adoration, Lord. Lead us and guide us so that we can give you more and more of our hearts this morning and moving forward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.